The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 7th, 2019, the Just a Little Bit of Shoe Polish edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., and my confreres, my fellow hosts, John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon of CBS This Morning and The New York Times Magazine, respectively, are both in CBS's studio. So I'm not with you guys. What secrets are you sharing with each other? What things are you talking about that you're cutting me out of? I just texted you all the secrets. You're not cut out of anything. Huh. I just updated John. you. All the secrets. Huh. It's, it's right. true. All the secrets, including um, the location of uh, the Masonic key. The buried but, treasure. Yeah, it's exactly. all in your text. What about Just the, go look for it. What about the location of the after party? And, <laughs> Are you going to tell me where the after party is? <laughs> yes. <this week? laughs> it's at Clive Davis's house. All right. On this week's GabFest, the cataclysmic race and sex scandal that is convulsing Virginia politics, then, like Groundhog Day, the State of the Union is the one day of the year President Trump shows up and sees bipartisanship, and then there will be six more years of misery. We will talk about the State of the Union and also just the President's Week in general. And then the appalling conditions at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn prompt outrage and a grassroots protest. Why is it okay to treat prisoners, treat people in jail as badly as we seem to be treating people in jail? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we've got two live shows coming up on the East Coast on March 27th, a Wednesday at the Lincoln Theater here in D.C. We're going to have a live show. It's going to be great. It's also going to have an extra special sneak preview of Emily's book, Charged, which is a wonderful book, and you're going to get a chance to hear more about it early and get a chance to buy it if you'd like for a discount. So go to slate.com slash live for information on tickets and tickets to that show. And then on Friday, April 12th, we are going to be in Charlottesville, Virginia, as part of the TomTom Tom Festival. And you can get tickets for that show also at slate.com slash live. So we hope to see you in D.C. or Charlottesville or both, but not neither. <laughs> so what in holy hell is happening in Virginia? If I'm going to do, try to do a quick summary, but I'm sure I'm going to miss things. I'm going to do a quick summary. So it's a controversial bill to roll back various abortion restrictions was introduced in Virginia. During the discussion of that bill, Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat and himself a doctor, said some clumsy things that implied that a baby born alive could perhaps be killed if parents and doctors agreed on that. He surely did not mean that. That is not what he meant. But he was what he said was extremely confusing. And those comments seem to have outraged uh, some conservatives who then sent a photo of Northam's medical yearbook page, his own page, his medical yearbook from Eastern uh, Virginia Medical School to a conservative publication showing that photo showed a person in blackface standing next to a person in a KKK hood. Northam initially took responsibility for the photo and implied that he was in it on Friday, then on, recanted on Saturday saying it wasn't him. But and then admitted that, in fact, he had dressed up as Michael Jackson in blackface with just a little bit of shoe polish on a separate occasion. Every leading Democrat in the state, meanwhile, starts urging him to resign. He doesn't resign. Then, as this is unfolding, a sex assault charge is leveled at Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, who would inherit the governorship. A California professor, turns out, has now come forward, Vanessa Tyson, alleging that he sexually assaulted her, forced her into oral sex at the Democratic Convention in Boston 2004. Then on Wednesday, a third Democrat, the third Democrat in line for the governorship, Attorney General Mark Herring, admitted that he too had appeared in blackface in a college photo dressed up as Curtis Blow in 1980. So, geez, oh man, what to say, Emily, for starters? Well, I mean... One thing to say for starters, I I do feel obligated to talk a little bit about this abortion bill because I feel like both Northam and unfortunately the Democratic legislator who introduced it in Virginia did a real disservice to reproductive rights in their um, fumbling way of talking about this. You know, this is not a bill that in the real world, when people are faced with a terrible decision about whether to terminate a pregnancy late on. It's almost always a heartbreaking situation of someone with a a baby who is 
not viable or a mother whose health is at terrible risk. But these are harrowing decisions that parents have to make. And the notion that there was some like cold hearted idea that, you know, oh, someone's going to just suddenly have a whimsical notion of aborting a fetus on their way to being born. Like, I just, that is not, I don't know, maybe that's happened in the history of humanity. Everything has happened in the history of humanity, but that is not really the situation this bill is designed to address. And maybe there's a perfect way to write the law so that it only covers these emergency situations. But it seemed like the law was pretty well written to do that since you had to have a doctor say that there were going to be, you know, health concerns or life concerns for the mother. So we can debate whether the bill was written carefully enough, I suppose, but I just am angry with Governor Northam for that part of it. Well, uh, what got confusing was, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, or I should say correct me when I'm wrong, is that the bill, the underlying bill, um, conservatives were worried about two things, I think. One was that the standard used to be that you had to have three doctors agree yes, that the mother's... one. This reduced it down to one. Now, to your point about Northam confusing things, Northam, whose comments made it seem like he was uh, advocating infanticide, then said, I think two doctors should be involved. So he was actually... Um, T- uh, had a stricter standard for doctor review than the actual underlying bill, which took it from three to one. So that's one level of confusion. But the other thing con- I think conservatives were worried about was that the standard for uh, l- health of the mother had a mental um, aspect to it. And I guess their concern is if you change it from actual physical health to mental health, that that creates a looser standard. And that while this is super rare and as you say most of most abortions happen i forget what's the number in the first trimester 92%. right 92 percent. so the number that happened at this very late stage is super rare but the conservative argument is but if you loosen the standards it will become less rare am i right about the mental health piece by the way or so john yes you're right the bill does allow a woman's mental health to be considered that is actually the standard from the supreme court so that isn't some crazy idea they came up with in virginia um and You know, again, I think these are really personal decisions that doctors should very much be a part of. But the notion that there are just like irresponsible people, I saw some very callous quote about how like, oh, someone just doesn't feel happy for a day or is like depressed for a day. And so they just suddenly whimsically decide to have an abortion. No, that is not what happens. That is not women's lived experience. So I find that infuriating. Let's move on to Northam's current problems and Virginia's current crisis, which is really about blackface. And how disturbingly common it seems to have been, at least in the 80s. And I really do find this surprising. I Maybe that's naive. I thought that white people understood that there was an incredibly painful history associated with blackface, and it's really not okay. No. Obviously, they don't. I mean, uh, you know, Megyn Kelly got right. into a difficulty with this uh, uh, earlier this year, so that isn't a yearbook page from the '80s. That's, That's a true. present, real, real case. And the, and just to give a brief, and you guys add more, but um, I mean, the reason this is so offensive is that this was a technique used to dehumanize uh, black people in order to keep them subjugated. Um, it represents um, uh, just one of the many different ways that the the power dynamic of whites was used to lampoon. Uh, and continue to make African Americans the other, so that anything could be done to them, both physically and law uh, through law, um, and that—that's what's right. And I suppose we've buried that history because it's disturbing and upsetting. I mean, I never watch those images when they come up on TV. Like, I've never watched Birth of a Nation. I don't even seeing some of the footage in the Spike Lee movie Black Klansman upset me because I don't want those images in my head. But we have to understand that history. And or I mean, I guess. I, although honestly, uh, I don't understand why this is a thing that people do. Well, anyway. I, one thing I th- wait, but it's go ahead, David. No, I, I mean, look, I thought Mark Herring's response was really good. Yes. I think I thought Mark Herring's response, which was he was he owned up to it. He was ashamed of it and, you know, made no bones that it was a terrible mistake that he'd made and he should have known better. But there the, the, it's also important to to recognize like there are different kinds of contexts. The, fo- the photo that is on Northam's page is so vile yeah. and so disgusting. It is a qualitatively utterly different thing than – stupid frat boy dresses up as Curtis Blow for a party 
or even stupid frat boy dresses up as Michael Jackson for a party and wears blackface. And I th- and I think and John, you can dig into your memories too. I went to a preppy white, mostly white, not entirely white, mostly white private high school in the mid and late eighties, and I do not remember an explicit, you know. M- elements of blackface, anyone dressing up in blackface. But you know what? It wouldn't at all surprise me if there were people who, you know, dressed up, dressed up in blackface for some Halloween party or for something. And I just feel like it was very common. It was certainly like incredibly common in Southern college culture and in fraternity culture. And that doesn't mean it was right. It doesn't mean that people were, you know, acting from any kind of good motivation and they were clearly being ignorant and and cruel and and their misunderstanding or their ignoring of history but it was very very it didn't have the same you know obvious like this is grotesque and wrong and like what kind of incredible idiot is going to do this quality which it has today i think it's i was just talking about this with my kids last night it's like the kinds of and, and this is not again this is analogy it isn't right but like the kinds of of gay slurs that were just utterly common in the world that you, the three of us grew up in, which now you hear them and you're like, oh my God, could, how could we have said that? And I feel like there, there's, a, there's an element of, we have to recognize that, that it was a different time and that there are different contexts. And I think what, Nor- I think, as I said, like, I think what is in Northam's page is, is, is irredeemable. Well, let me explore for a moment the idea that there's, sh- that the point you just made is is part of the problem, which is that, um, for example, you, uh, I think what you're arguing is basically there's a different standard for if we look at what's on the Northam page, using it as a way to think of two different kinds of images. One is of somebody in a KKK hood, right, and and the other is with somebody in blackface. I think your argument is, David, leaving aside that specific picture, a person who dresses up in a KKK hood is doing something more vile than if they were in blackface. Is that a would that be a fair way to, based on what no, you just said about well, the. Well, I think the person dressing up in blackface with the person the KK had is doing something just as vile. I think there's a distinction. It's not a particularly good distinction, but I actually think there's a distinction between somebody who dressed up in blackface ignorantly and stupidly and wrongly right. as Curtis Blow in a way to play pay tribute to Curtis Blow and somebody who is dressing in blackface next to someone in a clan hood where where there's not there's no context, there's no honor, there's no there's like right, there, right. Th- yes, yeah, I see. And yeah. also memorializing it on a yearbook page. Like yes. that's also what's crazy is like it's not just that you did this, it's you did this and you're so proud of it that you think we can put this on a yearbook page. And that that is incredible that you right. and then when the legislative black caucus in Virginia asked you to resign, you refuse. Like they're just so, and and also Northam completely bungled his explanations for all of this. So they're like Many strikes against him. I, I guess what I was clumsily trying to fumble towards is whether you could argue that basically wearing blackface is the equivalent of the KKK hood. And people would say, well, wait a minute, the KKK like murdered people and burned. But that the blackface going all the way back to Jim Crow, which was, an, was, which was a blackface minstrel character, was used in yes. the same way to create the same yes. subjugation. Yes. And so I yes. guess my argument Definitely. is just but, for anybody who's looking for a simple rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Think of them as the same, because I think there would be some people who would say, "Oh but, no, the, what, the the hood is obviously much worse." And I'm thinking perhaps they need to rethink it and just basically think of them as the same, because they represent, they come from the same vile, putrid swamp. Yes, and white people should just accept that. And yeah, but but sorry, I, and I I know I'm going to get hate mail about this, but it is different. The image on the northern page, both the person in blackface there and the person in the KKK hood have committed something which is just a grotesque sin and and they absolutely should have known better than they were in their – they weren't 12 years old either. They were in their mid-20s when they do this. So – but I also think that the dressing up to honor a cultural figure in costume, to honor a cultural figure you admire is something different and putting on blackface mm-hmm. turns out like – is this really stupid way to do it? Like there's so many other ways you could approach dressing up as Curtis Blow or dressing up as Michael Jackson. That is not the same as what is being represented on the North right. Age. There was a controversy about the girl who was wearing the, um, I think it was sort of a Chinese, Chinese traditional Chinese dress. dress. So, uh, you know, is that, does that have the same, uh, ring the same bells? Like is that in the same family? Is that something different? Like I, I think Northam needs to go. It sounds to me like Fairfax needs to go. Herring to me does not need to yeah. go. 
So I think uh, I totally get what you're saying, David. There's gradations here. There's a continuum, um, and which isn't to say that anywhere along the continuum is excusable. It's just that you're suggesting people think more intelligently about lumping everybody on the continuum into the same thing because there are distinctions to be made and understood. Uh, for fear of being too blunt in your assessment, which blots out the ability to actually understand what's at play here. John, talk for a minute about how Northam's brazening through, at the moment at least, uh, compares to Trump's brazening through. Is is the same strategy going to work? I mean, Trump Trump was was able to do it, I think, because by the time of the Access Hollywood tape, which was the most comparable moment, the GOP was sort of locked to him. There was no way of getting rid of him. And also the GOP base cares less about these issues than Democrats. Um, can can Northam get through in the way he's trying to? Well, I think they're – so they're qualitatively different. I'm I'm not sure on the latter point that the GOP isn't concerned about uh, the women's vote, which was what was at play after the Access Hollywood statements. I think they, I think they probably are. So I think that um, – I'm not sure I would agree with that. But I think your other assessment is 100 percent right. And, and, and the more I think and write about this for my book, the more um, two things are just so heavily in play uh, at that stage of the election. You had – uh, the antipathy towards Hillary Clinton that was um, that existed even among so you had many many people who um, didn't like Donald Trump and could go through a list of particulars of things they didn't like but they didn't like Hillary Clinton even more and so they thought uh, I'll vote for the person who's not her and then secondly the primacy of the Supreme Court that if we don't elect uh, somebody who's a conservative that seat will be filled by a liberal and those were two powerful things that uh, that I think help that Access Hollywood thing go go away. And then once he gets in office, there's the rallying around the team that we've seen. And I know we'll talk about the State of the Union next, but I mean, one thing that was striking, as Stephen Colbert said, is that Republicans were applauding between every one of, of President Trump's syllables, um, which just gives you an audible um, uh, representation of how totally welded together the Republican Party and um, President Trump are uh, at, at this period. Emily, I don't want us to forget Justin Fairfax and the allegations against him, which are quite damning as allegations. And, you know, briefly, it is that in uh, 2004 at the Democratic Convention, he met a, uh, a young woman named Vanessa Tyson, who's gone on to become a professor. And they went back to his hotel room. And after some kind of, kind of consensual kissing, he forced her to engage in oral sex. She considered it a sexual assault and, and she didn't, you know, she didn't file a report at the time. She didn't seem to talk about it much. Her account is quite vivid. Um, what are we to do with that? I mean, it's, it's a, that, that is, uh, you know, that's a, a crime and is disgusting. If true, we don't have any way to pr- particularly interrogate the claim and evaluate it at this stage. Right. I mean, I feel like at this point, the, process I go through is like I read it I think okay well there's no corroboration there are no other witnesses and she doesn't seem to have told people at the time like so I'm gonna withhold judgment and kind of see what we learn about her and whether what her incentives are and in this case you're talking about someone who is apparently a respected academic um known in the sexual assault survivor community because I think she was um abused by someone in her family but who's been really clear that she's a loyal Democrat and she has no reason to come forward other than the fact that, like, she says this happened to her and she feels like people in Virginia need to know about it. Um, that has a lot of hallmarks of credibility. I think the fact that Justin Fairbanks, like, cursed at her in a pretty disgusting-sounding way at a private meeting this week also counts against him. And, you know, the fact that Fairfax isn't going to be prosecuted based on these allegations doesn't mean that he deserves to stay in public office and continue to have all of the honor and dignity that go with that role. You know, it. I obviously I'm sure Vanessa Tyson wishes she had told people at the time now, but when you think about the culture of 2004 and all the reasons that a lot of women were not coming forward, women and men who are sexual assault survivors, that part of it isn't the least bit surprising. And she just seems like a person of integrity. And we learned, of course, from going uh, through the public conversation surrounding the Kavanaugh hearing that a lot of times women don't tell others at the time because they feel shame and embarrassment. And uh, John, do you, do you think this 
scandal has the potential to actually make Virginia a red state again, or at least a purple or purple state again? Well, let's, by the way, let's just take one moment to uh, remember that in 1989, Virginia was the first state to elect an African-American governor. Doug Wilder. So, Doug, uh, Douglas Wilder. So, that's just, when you think about the history of Virginia, this is uh, kind of amazing. Um, by the time we get to a presidential election, um, you know, we'll see how this handle, gets handled, whether some um, future thing that happens... Um, locks in a permanently negative, quickly accessible symbol for future uh, candidates to to work with on the on the stump, which would which would allow this to continue beyond the current moment. But I think um, I think basically this, depending on how it gets resolved, of course, but this by the time we get to a presidential election, that'll have its own dynamic that um, it depends on the races, of the people running. It depends on where Donald Trump is at the time. All, you know, I think there's just be so many other things that will will be at play. That will uh, that this won't affect the purpleness of the state, Emily. I know without knowing that there are hundreds and thousands of photos of Republican candidates and politicians in blackface. A lot of Republican politicians are Southern; they're white and they're men. They're of an age where where this is um, very possible that these things exist. Do you think that as if and when such photos emerge, that those same standards are going to be held, that Republicans will be held to the same standards that that um, Democrats want to hold Northam and and perhaps Herring to? I mean, don't we know that the answer is no? Because someone just <laughs> became a senator in Mississippi when there were pictures of her wearing a Confederate hat and holding a gun and um, seeming to kind of mock that history. So I think no, not really. Um, you know, I also want to bring up, I thought, an excellent column by um, Jamel Bowie in the New York Times this week pointing out that, like, yeah, it's really not okay to wear a blackface and these racist pictures are justifiably being condemned, but that also it's important to look at the actions of politicians and think about what kind of work they are doing to suppress the African-American vote, for example, Um so, you know, Jamel brought up a, decision, a court decision about North Carolina where the legislators there surgically targeted black voters to suppress their votes, according to this court opinion. You could also bring up a figure like Chris Kobach in Kansas, whose work spreading, you know, the myth of widespread voter fraud has been so instrumental. I, I do think it's really important to remember that structural racism, the kind that affects the franchise and like who gets to vote and who gets opportunities in this country is endemic. And the fact that we don't have like a picture of someone, you know, doing something that we can point to as symbolically and racist doesn't mean that like they're all okay too. There is a kind of way in which there's a an ease of condemning these pictures. Like even President Trump condemns these pictures versus like really thinking through the things that impact people's lives. I think that's right. I think that's right. Like what are, what exactly is being condemned and for what purpose I think is always super important in all of these, Um, you know, and what are people concluding about Ralph Northam or any other politician, uh, both about their behavior in the past the symbolism of that behavior in the present, but then also the reality of those politicians in the present with respect to their views and opinions and how that affects people of color. All of those things for all of these questions, it seems to me, always need to be discussed both to assess the individual at issue, but also to educate ourselves in this conversation, which appears above all conversations, maybe, or at least in the top class of them, one that we need to keep rehaving because people forget the original origin of blackface. And there's a way in which sometimes the, oh my God, you did a bad thing out with you actually keeps the conversation from happening because you have the quick, fast sanction. People don't talk about exactly what the purpose of the sanction is. And then nobody learns anything from it, actually. All right. uh, To wrap this, uh, if either of you, I know you won't, John. Emily, how do you hazard this, this ends? Um, if I had to guess, I say that Herring ends up as the governor. That's my guess. That the kind of distinctions you're making will be ones that Virginia legislators and voters will also bring themselves to. It's going to depend a lot on the black community and the black lawmakers in Virginia. And I think that's right, actually. Like this, they should have a lot of say over this. I guess there's some possible scenario in which Northam just like hangs on some totally... 
weird, powerless gubernatorial figure because the Republicans don't seem to want to impeach him. But I guess I'm just imagining at some point he's going to have to admit that that's not tenable. I think it's I think you're right that Herring as governor is probably the most likely scenario. I th- and that the second most likely scenario is Northam hangs on. I find it hard to think see a scenario where Northam has to go, but Fairfax gets to survive. The Fairfax right. allegations are just too too tough. Um, I want to make one final point, though, which is your books are bad. Your books, we should not have your books. I have another thing. I hate costumes. I've hated them my whole life. They take way too much work. Me I'm too. not creative in costume way. I hated as a kid, like they came with sort of sewing or crafting stress, which I found really stressful. I think costumes get people into trouble and we should just not pressure other people to do anything other than like put on a silly hat, not a Nazi hat. Or an Indian headdress. Even a hat can get you in trouble. So Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And this week, we're going to talk about the crisis in digital media. Crisis, crisis, crisis. A crisis slightly allayed by your being a member of Slate Plus, which is helping to fund great journalism at Slate. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today and to hear bonus conversations on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. If there's going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. The State of the Union was on Tuesday night. It was delayed, of course, after the shutdown. I have a confession to make. We've been podcasting for perhaps 12 years. And during that 12 years, we've talked about the State of the Union every year. And I have perhaps actually watched maybe two of them. Maybe watch little bits of others. That's what I do. Yeah, I'll try to catch up. I find it such a a depressing, bad spectacle. It was bad enough when it was collegial. And now that it's fully partisan, it is absolutely horrid. Um, But anyway, we'll talk about that. So the president, as he does... (laughs) I know, of course, John wants to. He, John's going to talk for 90% of the conversation, so let me <laughs> yes. just set Let's get it all to that up. part. Yeah. As he does uh, once a year, the president uh, shook shook a, a leg at bipartisanship and comity. I love that Kellyanne Conway had to spell the word comity. Um, he mentioned criminal justice reform, jobs for women, a goal to eliminate HIV. But, you know, he really, his heart wasn't in it. It turned his to his usual portrait of darkness. So it was a speech that at once said the country is stronger and better than it has ever been, thanks to him, with the greatest economy ever, thanks to him. And yet it is also a hellscape in the midst midst of a foreign pestilential invasion. And again, only he can stop it. So, John, what to make of that dissonance, first of all, that self-contradiction? You you did watch the speech and and have thought a lot more about it than probably me and Emily. So bring it. (laughs) Well, you know – States of the Union, the presidents have uh, two goals. One is to talk about how great everything is and how they all, all glory and honor is due to them as the vector of divine genius. And then on the other hand, to create enthusiasm and energy and use it as a persuasive moment to get people to go do the next thing. Now, there are two ways in which you can do this, or there are multiple ways, but there are... At least two. Yeah, there are at least two, right? Thank you. There are at least two until I come up with the third in the middle of my explanation of how there are only two. Anyway, one way to do it is to spread the the credit for all the good things have happened around like butter and make sure that you got everybody buttered up and talk about how great, how all the stuff they did 
created all the good things that are going on. Because as a president, you know, you know what usually happens is a lot of the glory comes to you anyway. But if you are magnanimous, it does a couple of things. A, it shows you're magnanimous, which is good. You want to look magnanimous when you're representing an entire uh, country. B, you want to butter other people up because they're politicians and they love nothing more than turning their butter-smeared face towards the camera and accepting the love as it's basted on them so that they can then get reelected. So you want to give them a gift of all this great stuff they've done because— You want them to be beholden to you when you come needing them for the next thing. So uh, that's why you do all of that. And by the way, what's the next thing you want? All the stuff you're about to talk about in the second half of the speech, which is all the stuff you want to go do. When you say you want to go do stuff, because it's a a system that um, where compromise is necessary, or it used to be anyway, you you have to say, hey, I want to do all these ideas that you really believe in because, and then you remind the audience how the people on the other side of you actually were previously for all the bills that you're now trying to pass, or how everybody's really an American and shares the same values and goals, and if you believe in motherhood and apple pie, surely you'll come sleuthing along with me over to this area. Okay, that's one way to do it. (laughs) Then there's another way, which is to say, it's all me, which is basically what the president said. He said we'd be at war with North Korea um, if it were not for him. I that a lot of people lampoon them that, and I'm using it as an example of his self-centered um, uh, focus, which is which is true both in the speech and outside of it. But it's also true that President Obama looked at taking preemptive action in North Korea to knock out their um, nuclear program, but decided not to do it. So. Things were trending towards a conflict. It's it's hyperbolic and it's over the top, but it's not um, totally out of the realm. So the president didn't take the opportunity to to spread the love. It didn't even take the opportunities that George Bush took in 2007 and that Bill Clinton took in 1995, which is to acknowledge that a big election just happened that was a repudiation of your policies. George W. Bush in 2007 said, it's my high honor and distinct privilege to... And instead of saying to address the body, he said to be with you, Madam Speaker. In other words, acknowledging that Pelosi was the first woman to be elected as Speaker of the House because of the thumping that he'd just taken at the election. And he then went on to talk about her father, who had been mayor of Baltimore, taking that easy opportunity to both A, extend an olive branch, but B, to look magnanimous in front of the whole public. Because what you're trying to do is show you're, you're not a bitter person because the country has just rejected you in an election. Donald Trump chose not to do that, um, which was, I thought, quite surprising. It's such an easy thing. It would have been such an easy thing for him to do. Then when he talked about the proposals that they could work on together, there was no olive branching. He mentioned some things, you know, like infrastructure they could work on, but he didn't really do. He just kind of mentioned it and drove by. And the key to the current fight that's going on, which is immigration, there were no olive branches. Uh, It wasn't an effective speech in any of those ways, which are the sort of traditional ways that the speech can be at least useful for a president. I was interested in exactly one moment of this speech, perhaps because I didn't see or pay attention to many of the other moments. But the one moment I was interested in was when Trump started talking about women and the women in Congress, many of them in white, and it stood up and it seemed for a moment like he'd lost control of the hall and they were going to kind of take over. And I loved that moment for its spontaneity and, of course, for its feminism. But I also thought he handled it well. Like He's actually quite good at the off-the-cuff parts of these things, partly because it's all about him being in the spotlight and reflecting back on him and the fact that he loves the attention sort of works in his favor, I think. Although it, when he told them then, like, what was it? You're not supposed to stand up or sit down. Like the instructing yes, the women on how not, to behave was maybe not something that was was working for him. Um, right. I mean, I didn't like that, but I also thought it didn't get totally out of control. Like there was a moment where he could have really, really like stepped in it. Anyway, um, what, but about, I, I would just one quick thing. If you're a Republican watching the speech, though. You loved it because you thought, why hasn't this, why hasn't he done this for the last like eight months? The economy, um, you know, talking about how well the economy is working, talking about his achievements with criminal justice reform, which, which some, which conservatives care about, at least some of them do. And it also allows him to talk to a broader public about having supported things that have in fact passed and to talk about all the stuff that, that Republicans like that he's done in a way that was relative to his normal um, mode of operating, look within the guardrails of, of um, 
public <laughs> But two speech. years in, this is so clearly the path not taken. Sure. Like, you oh, nod absolutely. at it for one night, and then, like, every fiber of your being goes into a completely different path. If I was a Republican watching that, I think I might just feel super frustrated. Well, it depends where you are, because I think there are, there are some people who argue, basically, if he were just behaved a little nicer, we'd really be doing great. Because, but he's not going to behave no, a little nicer. No, I know, nicer. I know, I know, but, they, but they're but fans yes, of his, and that, they seem to it for one night. That fantasy think, might continue on forever, I suppose. I did think, and I wrote about this, that, like, when, when a White House says, like, oh, he's going to stress unity, like, at this point in the administration, you know, when you cover it, like, you can't. Can't take that at face value, yes. I don't think. And and by the way, you can make an argument that unity schmunity, that that his genius as a president as he recognizes unity isn't gonna happen. And I'm just gonna basically we talked about this with Mitch McConnell. I'm gonna I'm gonna operate in the world as it is, not as it should be. And I just want to achieve for my side because that's where we are in politics right now anyway. And the faster you are real about that uh, or a realist about that, the more things you can get done. And that's, I think, the way he largely governs. Yeah, I guess the first thing, your portrayal is somewhat accurate, but also it's so much more haphazard and slapdash than that, right? I mean, it it feels to me like he's throwing spaghetti at the wall some of the time. Not that he doesn't have any kind of strategy or plan. I think he's super canny about the media strategy part of it. But I don't see the great accomplishments. I mean, this, this... dead end with the wall and the funding for it. I don't think there there's I don't see any way in which that's like been politically genius. Well, I'm uh, but but I'm saying if you're a Republican, I think the accomplishments that you see are the judiciary, obviously. You see an economy that's had 350,000 jobs last month, unemployment low, regulations down, tax cut passed, North Korea conversations happening, we're beating up on China. Fair enough. And I think some of those accomplishments he doesn't actually, you know, the president can't really take credit for the economy in any deep way. The judiciary was really McConnell's idea. He didn't allow those things to happen. but But the China thing is a weird one to bring up. I mean, the Republican Party really become the party that opposes free trade. They're standing up and clapping for this crazy tariff strategy. I was, I, that's seems odd. Well, me. I think the the part that they and again, we're talking about it the, we're talking about the way that people who have every interest in the world of finding good things yes, for him. Yes, the benefit and, of the doubt yeah, times and, 100. You know, a bunch of hostages returned. The argument on China is China needed to have be punched in the nose because they were stealing intellectual property. They are in a highly sophisticated effort to undermine US companies and US national security and so we may not agree with the way the trade trade way he's doing it but you know that's a um, we agree with the overall goal. I don't I think that's different yeah. than what he's doing with the EU and Mexico and yep. Canada on the trade front, yeah. because I think you can argue if you're a Republican that this has a a, se- a larger secondary ben- benefit, specifically with China. And I think that's Harder separate. to make ap- that argument about yeah. our allies, right? <laughs> yes, <are> exactly. <laughs> and I think that's separate apart from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The- can we talk about Stacey Abrams? I'm much more keen to talk about that part. Not yet. No. Okay. We will get to it. I thought the great metaphor for this speech was this kid Joshua Trump who was brought. The uh, Trump family invited as a guest a a young boy, a 12-year-old boy named Joshua Trump, who apparently had been bullied because of his name. He was sitting uh, a couple seats down from Melania Trump, and he magnificently fell asleep in this speech. And I felt like he is a metaphor for all of us. He is bullied. He is exhausted. He is bored with the spectacle. And he's given up. So I I applaud you, Joshua Trump, for of course you for, don't even um, get to really inhabit that metaphor since you didn't even watch it for the first in the first place. You didn't even have time to get bored. All right, before we go, I, Emily, I know you want to talk about Stacey Abrams. Um, before you we go to that, I just have a question about the the kind of gangster moment in the speech where the president implied that Democrats need to stop investigating him unless they want war and nothing to happen. So you know, it's a nice piece you got there. Shame yeah. something should happen to it. Is that what did you make of that moment, John? I've been spending a lot of time in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention. And if this, if we were operating under the principles of, um, you know, the original founding and the separation of powers um, and the massive supremacy of the legislature to the executive, that, that, that you could imagine both Republican and Democratic leaders of the congressional branch standing up and saying, how dare you? Don't you come here to our place and make those kinds of threats. We obviously don't exist that way uh, anymore, but that's essentially what uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House, uh, that was the response she gave. And it's the response that 
the chairman of the various committees who launched a whole boatload of investigations into his tax returns, into the child separation policy, and various other things immediately after the speech. Uh, that was obviously their response as well. Emily, what would you like to talk about? Stacey Abrams's response to the State of the Union. I mean, so Stacey, I, I feel like I have to say this every time as a disclosure, but actually it just sounds like total bragging on my part. Stacey was a friend of mine in law school. I thought that she did something really interesting with that speech, which was to make a speech that had many elements that are, you know, traditional planks of the Democratic platform and of Democrats' appeal. And then she really stressed voting rights and the problem of voter suppression, which obviously, you know, cost her probably the governorship in Georgia, or was at least part of why she lost, but also is emerging as a crucial issue, I think. I mean, I don't want to be a partisan issue. It should be a bipartisan one. But we're seeing that more and more. I mean, the Voter Enfranchisement Act that the Democrats introduced in Congress this week, Mitch McConnell denounced it as a power grab, which, like, it pretty much puts it out there that if you make it easier for people to vote, Republicans think that that will benefit Democrats and as a way of Democrats trying to take control away from them, which is like kind of a crazy idea because you would think that Republicans would think their ideas would win the day. Apparently, that is not how much McConnell sees it. And I just thought Stacey did a great job of bringing that in. What did you guys think? John, what did you think? I mean, if you're Democrats who are trying to make an argument, both articulate an argument, but then also embody the the concerns and and ideas of what you think are under threat. She's a perfect advocate for that, even without making the argument. I mean, even before she even starts she speaking, she doesn't even have to say it. If she doesn't have to say it, so I thought that was a. I mean, I thought that was a quite a useful symbolism. I thought also that is such a tough rhetorical yes. place to be in because you're not the president. You're always in some, you know, just room that can't match the moment. So you want a politician who, or you want somebody who is not. I thought she was a good choice for that. I mean, she's not in office now. So she doesn't have the same risks. So it can be a launching pad as, as opposed to normally, regardless of party, it's usually a crash pad. Right. Like, didn't Marco Rubio destroy himself? Rub- yes, they all have. Rubio, Jindal. I can't think of a good rebuttal that's been given. Right. Uh, it is kind of a setup for disaster. Yeah. So by that standard, she'd agree. Right. 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 By the traditional standard. But I and think I, there's something about the cannedness of the whole format that's just like well, the whole problem. The whole thing, going back to David's original point, I mean, it is a – I'm not as down on the State of the Union as David is, although I think one of the first pieces I ever wrote for Slate was get rid of this speech. I don't mind the convening uh, part of it, but, but we must – we must – focus on the fact that i mean the speech itself is is one in which the level of applause is supposed is, is people applaud as if it means something and the and the behavior is just like it drives you crazy that because of the series of things that need to be addressed and treated seriously it just kind of the spectacle of the moment is not um i'm, I'm a big fan for spectacle and that's not one that i'm a big fan of all right before we leave this topic let's just briefly uh discuss a, a tangent, which is another story about the president from this week, um, because it's it's one that will bring me pleasure to discuss, which is there was leaked to Axios, I think, was uh, a whole bunch of presidential daily schedules by clearly someone in very high up and intimate with the administration, revealing, of course, that the president spends remarkably little time on official duties, that 60% of his Work days are devoted to executive time, which is time when he's kind of off the leash. You know, with a different president, you'd probably say that's okay. That's fine. He's using it to contemplate, to think, to consult his unofficial advisors, to consult his heart, to really read up on policy. But of course, with Trump, there's just very strong circumstantial evidence that he is using it for no such good end, that he's using it to watch TV, to tweet, to watch more TV. On the third hand, it's like, well, the less he does, the less malevolent he is. So maybe having him do not very much is okay. But, John, as a scholar of presidents and of the downtime presidents need, what did you make of the executive time? The first thing you got to note is that basically someone who works for the president doesn't think the president is working, right? So this is a pretty big act of betrayal um, on the just the kind of the first crack at this. The second is that you make the right point, which is – it's not that you have free time on your schedule. We know that smart, creative, thoughtful, effective CEOs build in time into their schedule for that kind of looser, freer thinking. 
But but when you're doing that looser freer thinking, is it like a, a jazz concert where you know everybody's kind of loose and and, and the looseness creates uh, genius, creates creates moments, flashes of insight, creates an ability to imagine um, you know uh, what might be possible, uh, or is it not a jazz performance, but it's the sound that you make when the instrument cabinet falls over, right? So how you spend your time in that looser freer time is really crucial, and as you point out, there is more evidence that the president is spending on Twitter or watching TV or secondarily engaged in a series of thought processes that actually create challenges and problems for the rest of the of the organization because he'll come up with an idea and then, you know, put it out there and 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 aides have to um, cover for it or fix it or or otherwise ameliorate the effects of all that free time. I think secondarily, we also know, at least from Chris Christie's description of the president's discussion about the presidential transition, which, as you know, I have a a weird fetish for that, you know, we give presidential teams no time to transition into a four trillion dollar job. Whereas if you had a merger of two companies in the private sector of that size, they would take two years to create, you know, the systems for creating the new entity. And so Donald Trump said to Chris Christie, like, I don't plan for the transition. It's bad karma. Christie put together 30 binders full of material. It was all thrown in the, in the trash. So the point is that in terms of maintenance and care for systems of how to run a big complex organization, there's no evidence that the president in spending this free time is helping the progress of his administration. The Metropolitan Detention Center has power and heat once again. The MDC is a federal jail in Brooklyn. It holds about 1,600 people, most of them awaiting trial. And it spent much of the last two weeks without light, without heat, without hot water, without hot food. And this was, of course, during a real vicious cold snap. This probably would have passed without attention, just the usual, you know, usual indifference and cruelty towards society's unwanted. But family members and public defenders brought the appalling conditions to to the public eye. There was media coverage. There were protests. There were congressional visits. The Federal Bureau of Prisons, which oversees the MDC, doesn't seem to have sweated it too much. They really kind of took their time getting stuff fixed, even after they're criticized over it. It was interesting both for the level of human misery that we're we're willing to tolerate for people who, who are human beings and our fellow citizens and our family members and loved ones, and also just for the way in which this protest seems to have caused action. So, Emily... What do you think – do you think there's something different going on in our willingness to tolerate abusive conditions for people who haven't even been convicted of crimes? Do you think we're in a more cruel, indifferent, racist, lazy world than we were? Or is it – you know, is this something that probably has – you know, some version of this has been happening forever and it's just this was one that got attention? I mean, we're still in a cruel, incredibly uncaring world that is willing to tolerate misery among people who – you know, as you've pointed out, it's really important to say this: these are not people, for the most part, who are convicted of crimes. There are people even who are if they've been with convicted crimes, of crimes, trial. even if they had they've been convicted of crimes. However, it would still be cruel and vindictive. Absolutely, and I totally agree. But I do think there is an added, um, an added kind of um, sadness here, or just like compelling reason. It's easier to imagine oneself in that predicament, perhaps, for more people. In any case, yes, it would still be. Terrible. I mean, the government should not be keeping people in conditions where they are freezing and and scared. And that is absolutely what was happening. And the Bureau of Prisons seemed pretty untroubled by the whole thing. I mean, the one of the press releases said, you know, we've submitted a work ticket. Uh, this was over the weekend. Uh, it's like everybody knows what that means. Yeah. That is not happening first thing on Monday. And it's certainly not happening immediately. And this was after really weeks of um, bad conditions. I do, though, take some real heart out of the just swell of protests and activism that grew up around this. I mean, I don't know if even five years ago you would have seen those kinds of demonstrations and just like, you know, a sweeping through 
the media, through social media, on the streets, a kind of sense that like these are our people and we care about them. Um, and part of it was that it was Brooklyn. And so Brooklyn's a really progressive place and there's like an active, an activist community there that's easy to alert. And part of it was the federal public defenders who I thought did a really excellent job of documenting what was happening and sounding the alarm. And some of it was just like the detainees themselves and their family members. But it was pretty moving, at least for me. Well, this gets to, I think, Emily, the the difference, though, in uh, or get to the geographical question, which is that so many prisons are placed in places where, which are distant from families and hard to get to and are not easily subject to mass protests. This happens to be a jail facility right in the heart of one of the biggest and most progressive cities in the world. So I'm not sure that there's a there's an imitation that can happen in other ways, in other no, places. No, that's really important. I mean, there are some other cities like Baltimore that have um, more urban jail settings, but even New York itself, if this had been regular state court jail, it would have been happening on Rikers Island, which is, you know, physically removed by water mm. from New York City. John, you were going to say something. Two thoughts. One was that the... the mayor of New York City had offered assistance in, in the forms of generators and blankets and all that, and they were basically turned away at first, according at least to the mayor's office. And that, going back to the the work ticket, when I read that, so this is basically an electrical, part of the electrical uh, system there blew out, which has caused the uh, fire and then they caused the black electricity and hot water. And, and the, the, the fact that the Bureau of Prisons put this out in a press release that said a work ticket has been submitted by the electrical contractor to schedule a work crew to restore power to the new temporary service switch uh. in a press release trying to tamp this down. When I read that, I thought, wow, so you wanted to add both gasoline and napalm to this fire. I mean, it's just like, uh. So, um, but one thing I wonder about is in liberal communities, whether the feeling of both existential and impotence um, and frustration at at a series of national issues that they feel out of control to to, uh, fighting back against, whether that in a situation like this gives, whether you have an extra response because of that pent up feeling uh, or whether I'm just making that up. Whether, no, I think yeah. that's true. I mean, look, this connects to my book, but I think there's a way in which local electorates, local communities can rise up around criminal justice reform and show the muscle of an urban stronghold that's really appealing right now because there's so much frustration with the federal government and the Trump administration. And I should also say it's actually not just liberal communities. I mean, we are seeing big cities in red states and actually some smaller cities also have more activism. You know, it's a reflection of how completely out of control and disproportionate punishment is in the United States. It's gotten just so wildly overblown. But, you know, that was also true 10 and 15 and 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. And people were not as energized in fighting it as they are now. It's what's interesting for me is that I remember when I worked at the Department of Justice and I, we toured a federal prison as part of uh, the program I was on. And I, the Federal Bureau of Prisons has typically and traditionally been a pretty good jailer, that federal prisons are relatively well run. And I, I hope this doesn't reflect a general kind of decline and indifference in the federal prison system and, and a worsening. I feel skeptical that that's true, what you just said. I mean, you know, it's hard to generalize and they have more resources than state jails and prisons, but there are bad things that happen in federal prisons. I mean, they're the places of like the really locked down maximum security, um, lots of solitary confinement. I would not say that they're like a shining beacon. I must say, William Barr thought you did really great work while you were at the justice department though. Thank you. Uh, one of the the other f- couple of final points I want to make about this, but you guys may have others, is that if these if it were dogs and horses that were without heat and light and in, in some kind of shelter, there would like people would be outraged. It's that that there's this dehumanizing aspect of this, which is people have stopped fundamentally thinking of mm-hmm. of people in prison and jail as fully human, as fully deserving humans entitled to basic decency. And I I sort of feel like there's a split in criminal justice reform that's going on. One is the branch you're talking about, Emily, which is like we have to send fewer people to prison for a shorter time. We have to you know, treat them better. There's a second one, which is these people are just not human. They're not human the way we are, like as these migrants are not human the way we are. And so let's spend less on them. Let conditions be terrible because they don't deserve better and they can't make trouble and they're not politically powerful. And I think there, those, both of those things are happening simultaneously. 
it's, yeah, got um, the, the, right. the latter one is very unsettling. I would just throw quickly in on the uh, State of the Union, you had a pre- the president praise two people who had been in jail just to throw into your... And take credit for criminal justice reform, showing how bipartisan it's become. And yet, of course, David, the strain of um, lack of concern in a sense of like they deserve what's coming to them is is with us. I have a question for you guys. So one language shift that's happening right now on the left is to talk about caging people. So instead of using, you know, usually we the word incarceration, which is super stiff and formal, even locking up, like that's more visceral, but um, it's it's a shift to using the words caging about anyone who's being detained. Um, what do you guys think about that? Does that seem like the kind of powerful language shift that actually like shapes hearts and minds? Does it seem a little overwrought, irrelevant? Well, you know, it, it would be there would be a stronger argument against it if the Trump administration hadn't actually put kids in cages. Like, kids in cages is a pretty yes. They were literally in cages, so. That did not seem like a bad verb in that case, but I don't. I hadn't. I didn't realize it was being used for prison generally. I'm um, fascinated by the political reaction to incarceration because there's not only the left-right coalition that was created that forced criminal justice reform on the Senate and House. I mean that this came totally from the grassroots, and there was that yes. great, um, you know. So this is of a different order than other things, and it's weird. And it's so I think the analogy a lot of people say, well, we do it with criminal justice reform, we can do it with other things. I don't think that's right because I don't think you'd have the same shared pressures from each side. But so that interests me about coming up from the grassroots. And the second thing is the the, the referendum in Florida for confel- giving felons the vote. Yes, that that was so overwhelmingly, and that you had a lot of conservatives voting for it, even though they know that it's against their interests. If you buy the argument that a lot of convicted felons who, who are out will vote for Democrats. Yes. So the politics of incarceration uh, or cages or whatever you want to call it is something I, you know, is a, is a bit of a mystery to me. I guess what I wonder is, I mean, that seems like effective language going back to David's contradiction. You also have, remember how the president talked about crime in his convention speech and, of course, the American carnage of his inaugural address Obviously, at some level, and even in this State of the Union, when he talked, but in that case, he was talking about the hordes coming towards the border. But he obviously still plays on the opposite language, the fear-mongering right? Language, the fear-mongering language. So, so I don't know. I'm I've, this is not. I'm just rambling, not in towards a conclusion. I'm just trying to think through all of the elements. Well, I think another part of the politics has to do with the power of redemption and second chances. And so, what you saw in Florida mm. was the Koch brothers and evangelical Christian groups coming in in support of reenfranchising formerly incarcerated people because there's a sense that they had paid their dues. Right. Um, now, that's a different group of people because they're out. But it, it then you could you can start thinking about the people who are in. Who are and in, what who it could become take. like that. Right? Yes, and what it will take for them to be full citizens. And one part of the um, First Step Act that Congress passed is to increase levels of funding for things like education in prison, which is, you know, we cut those programs at our own peril because they always pay off in dividends economically in terms of giving opportunities to people when they get out, etc. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are having a vodka tonic with your new fancy tonic water, as I'm going to be doing tonight. And I would wish it upon you, John and you, Emily. What will you be chattering about, Emily? I am doing a double chatter. My friend James double, Sturm. Double chatter. Double chatter. My <laughs> friend James Sturm is publishing a book this month called Off Season. It's a graphic novel. It's so good and compelling. Um, kind of bleak and intense, but in a completely satisfying way. It's about fatherhood, mortality, maybe. And just like being a normal kind of working class guy in this United States of America that we live in. Um, So I totally recommend it. Off Season by James Durham. Um, And then I'm sorry to be in a total Stacey Abrams crush mode, but I thought Stacey had such an interesting essay in Foreign Affairs. And it's part of a collection of essay. And I actually recommend the whole collection. So the the inspiration or impetus for all this is um, an argument that Francis Fukuyama, the um, Stanford historian, is making against identity politics. And Stacy was responding to him and sticking up for the idea of marginalized groups caring about their particular identities, putting it in historical context. It was like the most fulsome 
defense of that aspect of politics that I've seen um, myself. And then there are other interesting responses by um, Jennifer Richardson, who I think is a psychologist at Yale. I thought her piece was great. And then some historians also wrote in. So anyway, I just recommend it all. It was like really, I, I agreed and disagreed with different parts of it, but it was like helpful in crystallizing my own thinking about this issue. I've mostly you know, resorted to the line of like, oh, it was only called identity politics when some black and brown people and women claimed up, showed up and tried to make their own claims. But that isn't really a defense. That's more saying this has always been with us. And I think Stacey went further than that. So foreign affairs. Jean de Garçon, what is your <clears throat> chatter? My chatter is about a delightful little, um, just hold it in your hand, um, video that uh, Jason Kotke, it's my, wor- it's my week to uh, chatter about something from Jason Kotke. What would we do without know, Jason man, Kotke, man? Isn't that true of the show and of life in general? But um, introduced me too, which is a, um, it's a Roll Doll interview about this writer's um, hut that he had in the back of his house. And so it's a, it's video of him going into it and then describing sort of how he gets himself situated. Um, and his way of talking about his process and then how the little nest that he creates allows him then to create is just, oh, it's just so perfectly what it is. And then he has an interesting conversation after that about adults writing for children and and what you try to do and how you do it and um which is which is just fascinating if you were interested in any of the things that he wrote so i recommend it roll doll uh we'll put a link in our on our page uh, to the video so my chatter is weirdly an echo of a chatter i did a couple of weeks ago i didn't realize it until i was starting to think about it so i talked about a photographer named annie wong who does photographs of her self and her son with a year a photograph taken a previous year behind it. And so there's this endless stream of, of photos. And I came across on Reddit uh, the most magnificent recursive imagery I have ever seen. It is Reddit is such an incredible place. There are terrible things about it, but the wonderful things are so wonderful. So basically, somebody um, somebody's mom painted a swan. She painted a, a, a an oil painting of a swan. And then this person took a photograph of of their mom with the with the swan painting. Someone saw this on Reddit and posted on Reddit. Someone saw this and said, "You know what? I'm going to paint a painting of the mom holding her portrait of the swan." And so this person painted a photo, uh, painted a painting of the mom holding her painting of a swan, and then took a photograph of themselves holding their painting of the mom holding her painting of the swan. So someone then said, you know what, I'm going to paint the person who painted this. And so you end up with it goes 10 layers deep where you have somebody has painted a photo of someone else having 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 painted the mom having painted the swan. And it, sometimes they're in different styles. That's and it's awesome. Magnificent. And there's a, actually someone and we'll post this a family tree where where it's you know there are now dozens and dozens of these paintings off on different branches because you could choose to paint in a different direction. And it's it's crazy and so fun. So um, take a look at this. I'll, we'll post a link. There's also, of course, listener chatter. There were there are, again excellent listener chatters this week. A number of them uh, very tempting listener chatters. The one that I ultimately settled on talking about was one from Casey Rose, who is at at Guy Vaviri. Casey Rose tweets to us about that Utah voters approved Medicaid expansion at the ballot box and the GOP is trying to undo it. And it's about this really um, interesting example of where the Utah voters voted to expand Medicaid and to expand Medicaid under the, the proposed expansions that were proposed uh, under Obamacare years ago, which is to people at 133% of the poverty line. And so they passed this with a strong margin at the in, in at uh, during the 2018 midterms. And now the the extremely Republican legislature, which has which has veto proof majorities um, for Republicans on both houses, uh, basically saying, you know what, we're not going to implement it the way you want. And we're going to we're going to do something different. And so we're going to, yeah, maybe we'll expand Medicaid, but much less than you want it to, to people who are not, not, not to people who are above the poverty line at all. And uh, we're going to not do what you voted to do. It's a really interesting example of where the will of the people 
as represented through a ballot initiative is going to be you know, flouted by the elected representatives, which I actually think is fine. I actually think that's okay. You know, then not they, these, fine. Ballot initiatives these, are an expression of direct democracy. Honor they them. They are an expression. Well, no, it's like then you vote out, vote out the these. The legislature is the the, the body that's been represented, elected to represent the interests of the state, and they have cho- They're saying like we think this is such a bad idea that we're willing to risk losing our election to there prevent it from so going to There are so many different reasons why vote. people vote I, for state, le- state legislature and, and only one that they vote up or down a ballot initiative. I just feel like what you're saying is kind of pie in the sky, not the way the process really works. This is clearly I a think longer ballot initiatives discussion. Are, ballot initiatives are, are generally speaking really baleful and bad. They have the been in the past, but that doesn't mean and, that they always have to be. And I, uh, it depends well, you're who backs them and how they get one you happen to agree with. <laughs> we should do this. Let's do it. Yeah, this we should. We should do ballot yeah. Okay. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is our managing producer. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter at us there. And also, please come to our show, our shows, in Washington on March 27th and in Charlottesville on April 12th. Slate.com slash live for tickets to either of those. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, especially for Emily Bazelon, who has a cold and who soldiered through, and especially for John Dickerson, who got coughed on by Emily Bazelon and will have a cold in three days. Perhaps that that extended metaphor about being basted was uh, a little too close to home. You've been buttered with Emily Bazelon germs. Anyway, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. (laughs) 